Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast where we talk about issues in science, mostly in medicine and agriculture, with an emphasis on biotechnology and the technologies that we can use that really help people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta, and today we're talking, speaking from the Animal Science and, oh, with the Association of <laughs> Animal Sciences and, what's the rest of it? I should have it in front of me. American Society, American Society for, for Animal, Animal Science. Ah, go. Always yeah. good to know where we are, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm here with Ken Whitwer, who's an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins uh, University in the Department of Molecular and Comparative Pathobiology. Okay, that's got right. That right. That's, oh, right. that's a weird department. Yeah, long name. <laughs> and the reason that I wanted to talk to you was because we're talking about RNAi. This idea of RNA interference, which is a gene regulation mechanism, and something that we frequently discuss on the podcast as a mechanism for genetic improvement of crops, plants, and animals. And what I really wanted to emphasize was I wanted to use this opportunity because you really are a specialist in this area. This is what you do. Can we step back to the beginning and talk about what RNAi is and then talk about some of the mechanisms that you know, it uses, but then talk about some of the controversies, because these are really cool, and they're always on the tip of everyone's tongue, so, and, and when I mean everybody, I mean, like, a few science geeks. <laughs> okay. All right, <laughs> so, 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 start, so, start us out with um, talking about RNAi, maybe frame it in terms of how it, um, inside the central dogma of molecular biology. Certainly. So the central dogma of molecular biology is that uh, genes made of DNA in the nucleus of a eukaryotic cell are transcribed into RNA, and the RNA is exported into the cytoplasm of the cell, where it is then uh, decoded and translated into protein. So the, uh, if there, there are multiple ways that we can interfere with this process to uh, influence the, the health of an organism. Um, one way to do this is by RNAi, RNA interference. So the, um, when the RNA is already in the cytoplasm, a small piece of RNA, uh, another, uh, another piece of RNA, could bind to that first piece of RNA and either uh, direct its cleavage, so cutting it up, 
um, or stop the translation of that message into a protein. So these are the two, uh, the two key outcomes of the RNA interference pathway. Um, so let's just jump backwards just real quick sure. for those who are, maybe are not familiar with this as much. If you think about RNA as kind of being a bridge between this island in the nucleus mm -hmm. where the material and information sit and the um, out inside the space of the cell where um, proteins are made, RNA is kind of the bridge between that process. It takes the information from within the nucleus and um, bridges to uh, where that information is turned into a product. And so RNA interference can be thought of as maybe an anti-bridge, right? Where maybe a, um, a way of eliminating the bridge by, um, by, uh, you know, by destroying it, basically. Yes, and in, in fact, it's almost like you're destroying that bridge with pieces of a bridge. Right. Right, so it's, you could take, a, take the concrete barrier on the side and put it in the middle. You're blocking traffic. Or you take a you know a piece of the bridge right next to right next to it and drop it on that bridge and it's going to destroy it. So um, it's, like it's interesting because the the RNA itself is um, RNA itself as a as a biomolecule is what is being used to stop that message. Yeah, and I, I always thought that I would never want to work with RNA when I was an undergrad and learning about different kinds of macromolecules. I thought this stuff is the stuff I will not touch because oh, it's the worst. It, it's <laughs> it's labile. It's like you know, it, you look at it funny, it goes away. But it turns out I would build a career around this stuff, and, and <laughs> yes. uh, I've I've always uh, enjoyed looking at gene expression because of the the fact that here's this transient snapshot of what's happening in terms of what genes are on or off. And this idea of RNAi, um, you know, I, I grew up with this in the first stories that came out in Petunias from Rich Jorgensen and his group about silencing the anthocyanin uh, coloration. And I always thought, wow, this is a really cool process. And seeing it shake out was really, really interesting going forward. So we got this way to destroy the bridge. Um, you also differentiated this idea between siRNA and microRNA. And what is the difference there? So the difference between siRNA and microRNA um, doesn't necessarily lie in the molecule. So an siRNA molecule and a microRNA molecule, we can't tell really what it is unless we know where it came from. Um, but the effects, the effects can also be a bit different. So um, we can define an siRNA and a microRNA through their degree of complementarity to their target. That is to say, they're composed of nucleotides, the nucleotides... Um, recognize their, their, their complements in the target. And an siRNA molecule typically has a 100% match to its target. So this could be over 22 nucleotides, 21 nucleotides. Um, there is a perfect match with the target. A microRNA and its targets have a very different relationship. So typically in the, in the, in the mammal, for example, the microRNA is only going to have a short sequence of nucleotides that recognize um, a sequence in the target. And the, uh, these are known as the seed. So the seed is at the five prime end, the, the very first part of the microRNA. Um, and that seed is, uh, is, is, is generally a, a, has a perfect match in the target, but not always. Um, and indeed, there are other, other modes of, of microRNA binding as well. So the, um, the illustration that I like to give of the difference in the effects of the siRNA and the microRNA um, is if I give my, my son a book to, to look through and I, I give him a 21, 21 uh, letter sequence, look for this sequence, and whenever you see it, um, just erase that, that paragraph. So he looks through there and he finds the 21, uh, 21 letter sequence and he erases it. 
The microRNA is very different. The microRNA, you're looking for just a short sequence, maybe maybe four or five letters long, six letters, seven letters long. Um, you look through the book, and you're going to find many matches. Uh, but the the result of the result of those matches is not that you delete the paragraph. It's that you're you're basically just uh, changing the contrast, maybe graying out the paragraph a bit. Um, so the microRNA has much less of an effect um, on its target RNA than than the siRNA might. And so it's that microRNA really is used kind of, as you said, uh, to fine-tune maybe a biological process. Maybe by um, regulating the abundance of a certain RNA or, let's say, the usefulness of that bridge. Whereas the um, small RNA, the SI RNA, is a complete bombshell on that bridge. Is that maybe a good analogy? That's right. That's right. The microRNA is going to have... Uh, in, 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 in a typical eukaryotic cell, it has, it has a, even a measurable effect only on a small percentage of targets. Okay, so one of the things that we talked about briefly here um, was the applications and places where we've seen this work. And I mentioned petunias, but what are some of the other kind of historical examples now where we've seen um, this kind of technology used? Well, um, before I go to the technology, uh, I, I want to mention the organi- organism C. elegans. So this is the, um, the uh, soil nematode in which much of the uh, machinery um, of, of the siRNA process was worked out. Um, um, we have uh, here a perfect storm. So this is an organism that needs to protect itself from viruses and bacteria in the environment. Uh, it's able to take up RNA from its environment and from these potential threats, and then process that RNA and use the RNA against pathogens that could be attacking it. And so this organism has the capability to take up RNA, recognize it and take it up, uh, distribute it throughout the body, through to, to all the different cells in the body, and then also to amplify this signal. So not only is it going to be generating these short RNAs that can interfere with messages of a, of a target, uh, but it is also going to be making new targets, basically, and chopping them up and using them in, a, in another round. Um, so C. elegans was where a lot of this was, uh, was first worked out. Um, as far as the technology, um, places where this has been, has, has been put to use, so we have applications in, in, in humans, so in the medical setting. Uh, there is a, an antisense inhibitor of a microRNA, um, that has passed phase two clinical trials for hepatitis C virus. And so this, uh, by inhibiting an endogenous microRNA, that is a, a microRNA that's made in the human liver, you can help to knock down the replication of hepatitis C virus. Um, another and application... That's a, and that's a really good one because hepatitis C, until very recent times, was a rather insidious disease. That you, well, it still is. But now there's a number of different uh, antibody therapies that can be used to cure it. Um, previously, it was always a disease you would manage. So having an alternative therapy for that would be a really good thing. Exactly, yes. And, uh, and there, are, there are also uh, numerous cancers where certain microRNAs are over or underexpressed. And there have been attempts to deliver uh, extra microRNAs or knock down the harmful microRNAs using, uh, using smaller RNA-based therapies. Um, and so some of these, some of these ha- uh, are, in, are in the clinical trials right now. How about the examples like papaya? Yes, so, uh, so some people had the bright idea of uh, trying, to, trying to protect uh, papaya or plum uh, from, from viruses that can, that can devastate those species. 
And uh, the idea there was, why don't we vaccinate these plants? So we'll give them a little piece, uh, some DNA that's going to express a protein that's part of the virus. And uh, then the plant will make a defense against this protein. And so when the infection occurs, uh, the plant is going to be able to defend itself. And it worked. It worked very well. Uh, but when the scientists looked for the protein that they were trying to express, they didn't necessarily find very much of it. It really wasn't there. Um, and it turned out that the, the mechanism behind this resistance was actually RNAi. Yeah, that, and that's always a, a, I always like to bring up that one because actually it was uh, maybe episode 26 of the series was with Dennis Gonsalves, who was the, uh, the well uh, Cornell University scientist who worked with his home country in, or his home country, <laughs> you know, sometimes you forget Hawaii, uh, who worked with the Hawaiian um, USDA yes, to yes. come up with this. Wonderful. And he, it's a great story if anyone wants to listen back in the archives. Um, the other reason I bring that up is because, you know, so much of this was done in plants, and plants got such a short change, I think. I, C. elegans is cool and stuff, but, you know, when you look at the timeline of all this, that these two things were happening independently, and the animal system got so much of the spotlight, which is, you know, which is fine, but, you know, it's good to remember that this is something that is conserved across um, so many different me- um, organisms. Yes. It's a very ancient mechanism. It is. It is, and in different kingdoms, you know, it's a, it's evolved a little bit differently. So, so there are um, there are similarities, but but also differences. And so, what are some of the other? You mentioned the um, uh, Smart Stacks um, product that has now been approved. So RNAi has been approved for use as a defense against the. Uh, Western corn rootworm? That's right. How does that That's work? right. So the, the Western corn rootworm is a massive economic uh, problem and a massive problem to corn production in, in, uh, in this country. Um, so SmartStacks Pro is a product that, uh, that, that was designed to go after a, um, uh, an essential gene in the Western corn rootworm. And uh, a, a very nice thing about double-stranded RNA mediated technologies, siRNA, is that you can pick a sequence that's not going to be found in another organism, and you can go after that. So if you want to just kill the western corn rootworm, but not the ladybug, not the honeybee, you can you can go for that that gene. Um, so this uh, this product was, as you mentioned, just licensed by the EPA um, in in June of 2017. Um, and it has it has undergone extensive testing, uh, including safety testing, um, to assess the possible effects on non-target organisms. Yeah, so that was uh, and, and that's the beauty of this is in its potential specificity. And there's a lot of folks now who are expressing um, pathogen uh, genes inside the plant that, upon invasion of the pathogen, destroy the pathogen. At least with uh, fungi, yes. uh, things that have the the hardware to do the RNAi. And, um, and so that's becoming more and more common. And, and so this was approved. Um, what were the major um, opinions of the regula- regulators in this case? So there were uh, three, three agencies that looked at RNAi technology in plants, and, and uh, we could call this a plant-incorporated protectant or a PIP. Um, so um, I, was, I was involved in two scientific advisory panels of the Environmental Protection Agency that met in 2014 and 2016. Uh, the first panel examined the issue at, uh, at, at large, broadly. Um, 
are RNAi products, do they have a potential safety, uh, any potential safety concerns associated with them, particularly for humans, for other mammals, for the environment? Uh, and then the second panel specifically examined the, the evidence uh, behind this, the SmartStacks Pro product against uh, Western corn rootworm. And so it turned out that there, there was a diversity of opinion, uh, especially I think that uh, there, there were concerns that this, uh, this double-stranded RNA or its product, the short RNAs, could be taken up by humans, by other animals. Um, and that these products could potentially have off-target effects that could be deleterious. So there were um, there were concerns about that, and so the the the, the evidence, the data, um, were discussed at these at these two panels, um, and conclusions were were reached. Yeah, and it's. Uh it's good that this kind of went through because it sets a good precedent. I think it says that you know these are technologies that don't offer much risk and and still could have profound benefit. Um, there's a I don't remember which one it is in the series, but um, a researcher recently put an aflatoxin um, suppressing uh, RNA uh, antisense RNA that in corn. So huge amounts of corn are lost because of the presence of aspergillus that produces a uh, toxin that's horribly toxic to humans and probably is, is most people on the planet are being exposed to it. And this corn shuts it down. Amazing. And, you know, for humanitarian effort, what a cool thing, you know. Oh, absolutely. There's so many so many things that you could do here. I mean, just think of the, the innate potato where you have lower acrylamide levels, so less potential for, uh, you know, carcin- carcinogenesis. Yeah, so this is really cool. So we're here with the Talking Biotech podcast, broadcasting from the American Society of Animal Science, and we're here with Dr. Ken Whitwer. Um, he's an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins uh, University and uh, in the Department of Molecular and Comparative Phytobiology. <laughs> Let me try that again. Phytobiology. You know, I'm. You can. It's funny because when I get uh, feedback for the podcast, yeah. people say, you know, I really like the podcast because it's just so unprofessional. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, you know, it's, it's the ultimate complicit. But, but we'll be back in just a minute. Greetings, talking biotech aficionados, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thanks to you. You've written great, wonderful reviews on iTunes, and it's quite a beacon to the podcast surfer. Shows your amazing support for this mofo of a science show. And special thanks to you who dared to accept my challenge and got that Talking Biotech Tattoo. It's appreciated, but guess what? That tattoo lasts a really long time. It's my hope that someday, a few decades from now, we can look at your dermal commitment to a science podcast and ridicule you for defacing your flesh. Our hope is that your days in assisted living will use that tat as a conversation starter, reminding the elderly of the dark ages when science was shunned for flashy marketing and myth that placed fear over reason. However, with the support of so many listeners, we're moving innovation to application and helping people and planet along the way. So, Tell a friend, 
write a review on iTunes, and most of all, share the beautiful science that we learn from the expert guests that kindly share their expertise here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back at the Talking Biotech Podcast, this week talking about RNA interference. We're talking with Dr. Ken Whitworth. He's an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins University in the Department of Molecular and Comparative Pathobiology. Got it. And the thing that was so much fun about your presentation here at the, at the meeting was that you share love and affection for one of my favorite papers, 2012 um, paper that was in uh, Cell, Cell Research, Research. Cell Research. Um, by Zhang et al., and they talked about this idea of a microRNA from rice that was changing the um, biology and the physiology of the animals that consumed it. Can you give me a little bit of a reminder of what this paper was and uh, you know, in some of your first impressions? So this paper was huge. This was one of the papers that I think most people remember where they were when they heard about it or when they <laughs> read it. Um, anybody in this field certainly is... Um, um, uh, ha- has had experience with it. So this this paper came out in uh, published online late 2011, then published uh, in 2012, and it was a paper that reported that there was a, there were several rice microRNAs that could be uh, absorbed into the bloodstream uh, by humans and by by ma- mouse, um, and then not only be absorbed into the bloodstream but also get into tissue, uh, and in that tissue. The report was that they could regulate a particular RNA. So this is an RNA that's involved in cholesterol metabolism. It's uh, it's fairly abundant in the liver, and this was the this was the first indication that uh, that that RNA could really be bioactive after digestion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so it was it was the kind of paper where you thought, could this possibly be true? And if it is, what are the implications? And so I was thinking. I want to do this. I want to do this myself. I want to. I want to make some plants, or make some, or feed some some animals some RNA, and, and change their uh, change their response to disease. So I, w- I, I, you know, my my focus in the lab is really mostly on HIV, and we had investigated several microRNAs that could stop HIV expression, or at least turn it down, um, and then we had also been looking at how microRNAs affect different host factors that are important for HIV or that, that try to stop HIV. So I, I could see a myriad of possibilities for just uh, you know using this previously unknown, previously unappreciated mechanism for delivery to achieve new, new kinds of therapies and help people with, with HIV disease. Uh, so it was very exciting. And so we, um, we pretty soon after that, we started to do some experiments to confirm um, that what had been reported was true. Yeah, and that was what, when I saw this, it almost could knock me over because I thought, this is the coolest thing, and because not only did it have um, some profound implications, because nothing we eat is sterile. Um, With every swallow, we're swallowing bacterial RNA, we're swallowing fungal RNA. With the food we eat, we're swallowing the RNA that's resident in tissues and plants and animal meat. We must have a bajillion small pieces of RNA um, that we're subjected to every day, and if they have meaning physiologically, you know, could we create cocktails of, of RNA that we would consume to be healthier? This is what I'm thinking. But then I started to do the back of the envelope math, 
is that, wait a minute, if RNA is surviving digestion, and then it's getting taken up, and then moving throughout the body, and then somehow being targeted to a specific tissue to amplify or suppress a specific gene, it almost seemed not feasible. That there had to be mechanisms to actively transport and move and gather and sequester and maybe even amplify specific discrete messages in, in the, the antisense RNA. So the more that I thought about it, the more cool I thought it must be, if it's true. But then the more I started to think there's no way this can be right. Yes, and you know, I had, I had some similar concerns. As we started to do our experiments and as we got more and more familiar with the data in this paper, we noticed a few, um, a few uh, I don't know what to call them, concerns or yeah. discrepancies. And so one, one of these things is that the study design uh, took about 100 people and divided them up into, into groups of 10. And each of these groups of 10 was then um, examined for the presence of all sorts of RNAs, right? They're looking at everything, not just, not just human, not just plant, but, it, but everything that's there. Uh, and then the, the, the numbers of microRNAs that were coming from plants that were described um, varied so drastically between these different pools of individuals that, that I thought, how, how does this happen? Because normally when you pool individuals, you get rid of sources of variability and you end up with readouts that are very similar to each other across the board. And here we had uh, readings that were varying by 10,000-fold, for example, from pool to pool, and that didn't make sense to me. So that was one of the things that I noticed. And the other thing that I noticed was the, uh, the time. So within three to six hours um, of feeding some, some rice to a mouse, the report was that this RNA had already gotten to the liver and had already regulated a, a protein that was that was present in the liver, and that's that's awfully rapid. That's a that's uh, it's it's really difficult to envision how that could happen um, with the mouse physiology. Yeah, I guess that was kind of my concern too. You know, so the first part was you didn't see a regression to the mean. You, you the more even though you should have seen kind of an average fallout of multiple people you weren't seeing. It almost gave me, he thinks it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> so it almost makes it seem like there was a um, uh, um, some sort of error or contamination, that kind of thing. And and when you look at, like, in across all of the huge numbers of data sets we have these days, with all the RNA data that's out there, have there been any um, validations of this that suggest that maybe this is true or that there are conserved cases of associations of certain small RNAs maybe with abundance of a particular message? So no, no, in, a, in, a, in one word, no. Um, I think that when we look at different data sets, we can find different sequences in those data sets that are actually consistent with, uh, with artifacts. And by artifacts, I just mean it could be contamination. It could be that people are using the wrong mapping strategies to identify what organism a particular sequence came from. And I'll, I'll give you the story of, um, of my friend Juan Pablo Tosar. So he's working um, in Uruguay, and he's in uh, Alfonso Coyote's lab. They were, they were working on um, some, uh, some different organisms in the lab, and they were finding turtle sequences in human sperm. <laughs> So what could explain a turtle sequence in human sperm? Is well, somebody I, eating I, turtle soup, or <laughs> is there another explanation? Yeah, for that? I, I could think of a few scenarios, but we don't need to go <laughs> we there. Don't need to. <laughs> so, but they, when when they when they um, they realized that what they needed to do because they also had uh, there, there were there were turtle sequences in their lab when they separated their benches their or their hoods for working on these different organisms, they were able to clear out that contamination. 
and no longer see that, that turtle contamination. And when they looked back at the original data from the Zong paper, um, what they discovered was that they, um, when they compared those data with a previous study from the same lab, um, and in that study, they were looking at an aquatic organism that is fed algae. So it doesn't, it's not fed plants, and it's, it's kept in a controlled environment. Those same plant microRNAs were showing up at roughly the same relative abundances in that organism as in the human study. And so this suggests that there was some form of contamination, whether in the RNA preparation or in the library preparation or in the, or in the sequencing itself. Yeah, and I guess that was, uh, you also mentioned another paper, and I, I don't remember if it was uh, maybe Friedlander. Was Friedlander, yes. Yeah. So, so Mark Friedlander and his group, um, this paper was by Kang and Bang Bertelsen, came out in 2017, January. Um, they examined over 800 sequencing data sets, um, all human. They were drawn from several different biofluids, several different tissues. Um, and what they observed was that the plant microRNAs or other foreign microRNAs that they could find in those data sets were dependent on the study, on the individual study, and not on any anything else, any any other any other clear explanation. So, um, for example, there would be, there would be some studies where you'd find uh, some plant microRNAs. There'd be others where you'd find some insect microRNAs. But there was nothing that was consistent, except for one thing, and that was rat and mouse. So there were rodent microRNAs in many of these samples. Um, and at fairly high levels. Um, of course, what do, what do sequencing facilities work with? Uh, in the modern academic environment, they're mostly working with human sequences and rat and mouse sequences from the animal experiments. Um, so it, it gives a, a very clear um, indication of the level of contamination that there could be. Uh, of course, then there's also the possibility of mismapping. So what, what I have seen is that in recent, um, in the recent publications, there there have been several publications that have claimed to find support for the original uh, finding. That is, that plant microRNAs can be taken up into circulation. But they seem to have have uh, all found different microRNAs. There's never the same microRNA that's there. And recently, there have been more and more microRNAs described that have very high numbers. So the microRNAs, when they um, when they were uh, first named, you first start with one, two, three, four, five. Um, now we're up to you know the thousands. We're into the thousands, and so all of these microRNAs that are being found now are in the in the thousands, and um, and it turns out that they're also probably not microRNAs. They're degradation fragments of longer RNAs, such as ribosomal RNAs that are structural components of the ribosome, um, and of course, like any other RNA, they get degraded. But certain sequences might be less susceptible to degradation than others, and these sequences. Uh, have been reported by some to be taken up. The other, I would also like to mention, though, that ribosomal RNAs are very well conserved, even yes. across kingdoms. Yes. And so you might find that one of these microRNAs, these supposed microRNAs, um, is the same as, as, hu- as the human sequence, with uh, maybe 100% identity or close to 100% identity. Uh, so what is likely being detected here is actually a human RNA. Um, and the filters that you use in your analysis are going to determine whether that's classified as a, as a human microRNA or as a plant microRNA. Yeah, so so essentially all these like really cool papers that describe these revolutionary new findings that really would change the paradigm and open up whole new areas of investigation really have become much more uh, looked at much more critically and actually kind of sideways. 
Um, but, you know, the folks in the original paper, they really have dug in their heels on this. And they really say, well, this is, this is real, this is our stuff. How do you know, what, have you met them or do you know their, uh, have you ever had a discussion with, uh, with them on this? Oh, sure, yeah. So I, I've met uh, Chen Yu Zong. He's the, he's the PI. He has a, a very large and successful lab. Um, he, um, I've, I've spoken with him multiple times. And I, I, I think that he truly believes this. Uh, I, I know that he truly believes this, and he's passionate about it. And, and I, I respect that, but I also look at the output from this lab, and I see, I see what I consider to be mistakes that are being made. Um, for example, he published a watermelon feeding study where human volunteers were drinking about three liters of watermelon juice, I'm not sure that I could do that, yeah. but some, <laughs> some people can, I guess. How much vodka? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they looked for RNAs that were, that were increasing and declining in the circulation and okay. consistent, uh, consistent with, with intake. Um, and the microRNA that was taken up to the greatest extent um, and also with the nicest curve, you know, intake goes up, you digest it, it gets taken out of the circulation, goes down. Um, was a microRNA that was called Mir 528, and when I looked that microRNA up, it turns out that it's not—it's uh, not a microRNA that you find in watermelon. <laughs> uh, so it, it didn't make—it didn't make sense to me. And I think that when you when you observe inconsistencies like that, you really have to start to wonder about what any of these data mean. You know, if we can't identify a microRNA that's actually in the organism of, of interest. And you know, and, and that's what I, I think that a lot of this is, and, and I suffer from this myself um, with respect to this topic is a lot of wishful thinking. Oh, because I, I would love to see this be real. And yeah, and, and I, I have to admit to that too. I mean, my first experiments that were done in this area, I was looking at um, I was using quantitative PCR. So in quantitative PCR, uh, you have you have cycles of amplification. So every cycle, you're doubling whatever material is in your sample. Um, so if I have something that's super abundant, it's going to come up. At, I'm going to see it at cycle 10. And if something is very very low abundance, I might see it at cycle 30. Well, in my in my original data, my first first few data sets that were coming off the machine, I was seeing these cycle numbers of 38, 39, and I was thinking, oh, is there some way that we can analyze this that makes it look like it's real? And then I started to think to myself, why am I even thinking this way? It's like I should not be so invested in the outcome that I don't believe my own data. And then I had to realize that all of, all of these data are just, are just noise. And again, I'm probably just amplifying endogenous material, human material, or rat material, mouse material, not this plant RNA that I think and I hypothesize is being taken up, and so I had to kind of do a course correction for my own mind. Let's 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 take the data as they are, and not try to read too much into them. Yeah, and I, you know, and I give you a lot of credit for that because I think that my tendency is that if somebody else does it and, and shows this this um, these data, I tend to give them all of the um, credibility they're due. And I figure they must be right. It must be my mistake. And so when I can't reproduce the result, I kind of go, well, that one's on me. Mm-hmm. And I really takes a lot of, a lot of reproduce, well, a lot of attempts to not reproduce it, to ensure that I'm the one who's wrong, you know, yeah. because I really do trust somebody else. And I think it must be me. Um, and, and, you know, so that, that's always my tendency. 
But you had mentioned a quotation, and I, I don't know who said this, but I, I, I won't tell you. No, I, <laughs> I don't want to embarrass anybody. Well, I, you know, you know, what's, you know what's interesting about that though is that um, I said the same thing. You did, yeah. And, yeah. and in and we actually had a journal club back uh-huh. in when this paper came out, and I said, and the, and the quotation was, "I want to keep working on it because it would be so cool if it was true," and that was my sentiment exactly. Was I can't see how this can work. I don't believe this will ever reproduce. This is a one-time paper. But if it's true, it is my favorite thing, and I'm so glad that we were here to see it. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to see that that's uh, a sentiment shared by others. Mm -hmm. And so tell me a little bit about your actual, uh, the other things that you do in the lab. I mean, you uh, mentioned you work with HIV. Um, What are some of the interests in that area? So we, um, we, we are interested in, in HIV disease. Uh, we started by focusing mostly on central nervous system disease. So uh, back in the early days of the HIV epidemic, um, patients were coming in, they were presenting with this frank dementia. And so it was called HIV-associated dementia. Um, now we have a spectrum that's called the HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders, or HANDS, um, ranging from something that's fairly mild and that you probably wouldn't detect uh, you know, if I had it and I was talking to you, um, all the way to the frank dementia. And with the advent of the effective antiretroviral therapies, uh, the dementia has largely gone away um, in most populations. Uh, however, we still continue to have problems in the central nervous system, um, just as we have with, uh, with other organ systems in the body. Um, so HIV is really a, uh, an infection that affects everything. It affects the whole body. Um, and we would like to understand why that happens, even in this era of effective antiretroviral therapy. Why is it that HIV can still do this? Um, and one of, one of our hypotheses is that the virus isn't completely silent. So somebody who is... Uh, Taking taking their medicine, taking it taking it faithfully, um, even in even in in that individual, the virus is still creating uh, some RNA, possibly even some protein, and then these these RNAs, these proteins can even be uh, it can even be transmitted to other cells um, without the production of infectious virus. And the way, that we, the way that we think this occurs is through um, small pieces of the cell that break off and can then go to other cells, and we call them extracellular vesicles. So HIV itself as a virus is really just an extracellular vesicle. It's a piece of the cell that has broken off and has been hijacked by this RNA genome, uh, this genomic program. Um, but we, could, uh, we, make, uh, we make extracellular vesicles um, every cell of our body makes these things, and uh, a good deal of energy is expended into making these vesicles. And it's thought that they're involved in um, taking out the trash, so in some ways they're garbage disposal uh, vehicles. Uh, but they're also involved in communication. So they can, uh, m- my good colleague um, at, at Johns Hopkins, Norm Howie, just recently published a paper on how the liver and the brain can communicate. Um, and, and similarly, other, other organ systems can communicate with each other. But maybe the most powerful communication is between adjacent cells, uh, where there's no dilution of these messages into a bloodstream or other, other uh, 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 transportation system. Rather, the vesicles can just go from one cell to another. Um, so, so extracellular vesicles are something that we have, um, we have a lot of interest in. Well, it's great. So what we should do is, you know, sometime in the future, when you want to come in and talk about that, you know, let me know. And we'll we'll have a good discussion about that, too, because 
Um, a lot of our audience is really excited about medical issues and medical breakthroughs and ways that we can maybe uh, deal with disease by intervening in some of these specific disease-associated um, um, mechanisms. But very good. So if people wanted to learn more about your program, um, do you have a website or are you available yes, on I social do. media? Yes, or? yes I am. Yeah. So I, 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 uh, I, I try to be active on social media. Maybe I'm not as active as I should be, but I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter and, um, and Facebook. We have a lab Facebook page um, and then we, we do maintain a, a website where we try to, try to keep people um, informed about events that are coming up and Things that are going on in the lab. Cool. So on Facebook, someone would just look by uh, Ken uh, Whitwer. Yeah, Whitwer Lab. W I T W E R. W I T W E R. And then on Facebook, on uh, Twitter. On Twitter, I'm Kenneth W Whitwer. So at Kenneth W Whitwer. Yes. All right. Very good. And I'll make sure I have those on the on the website if anyone's interested. Great. Thank you. So Ken, thank you so much for your time today. Thank so, you, Kevin. It's it been was, great. Great to talk with you. It was really cool. It was a great talk today, and uh, and and really was nice to revisit one of my favorite topics. So thank you very much for being a guest. Sure thing. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech@gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.